0: Hello and welcome to this week's Big Interview with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Today, we're going to hear more of our travels in Ukraine, and in particular, a fascinating interview with Taras Bick, a political strategist before the war who worked with leading anti-corruption activists, the so-called Generation of Maidan, including the mayor of Mykolaiv. Now, his big project is the breakup of the Russian Federation. Taras, thanks so much for uh, talking to us this evening. Um, Can we go back to Maidan? In fact, let's go back a little bit further than that to what you were doing before Maidan, and then your involvement in the revolution itself.
1: So I moved to Kyiv in 2006 uh, to work at the Presidential Secretariat of Viktor Yushchenko. So we promoted some pro-Ukrainian ideas here. Well, when the president changed, uh, I was in Brussels, actually, the European Commission having traineeship, and I returned. We had a different president, Viktor Yanukovych. So, obviously, it was not the place to work for me. I left the, the office and joined International Republican Institute, an American organization which was responsible for promoting democracy worldwide. And we had actually many like practical tasks who were working all over ukraine going to different places from uh, western ukraine but actually our work was concentrated mainly in eastern ukraine and southern ukraine so including places like mariupol mikolai and many others so we, we were helping like with good governance projects with uh, for local authorities to become uh, non-corrupt and to become efficient in their governance um, and this is what when the maidan happened and because well we realized that uh, ukraine was on the crossroads either we are moving backwards after maidan or we are going to westwards and that's why it was so critical to stay on Maidan and uh, yes I mean when Yanukovych was elected we expected that something bad is likely to happen uh, it was hard to imagine that peaceful people will be shot in the center of Kyiv in the center of uh, European country in 21st century it was something like hard to imagine and especially hard to witness because well I was there I saw all of it but well we managed to survive to win this war and but this is when the war with russia had begun. Uh, so I would say that actually Maidan was the uh, introduction of to the war with Russia because we know that there, there were clear connections of people shooting Ukrainians on Maidan to to Russian services to Russians uh, themselves. And this is when Russia started the war in the Crimea and Donbas.
2: Can we focus down on one place you know a lot about, Mykolaiv, when you talk about uh, overthrowing the old System and installing something that's, you know, cleaner, let's put it like that. How do you actually go about
1: it? Can you tell us about what happened in, in the case of a place like Mikolaev? So, Mikolaev used to be one of the most, uh, the city with the most pro-Soviet, pro-Russian mentality. And uh, election of uh, Mayor Sienkiewicz in collections 2015 was quite a big surprise because he was representative of pro-Western political party. And this is when basically it was fr- first indicator that the city, like very pro-Soviet, pro russian city was changing its um, direction, I would say, to into like absolutely different direction. The mayor was uh, shortly removed by old like uh, pro-Russian guys. And then he returned to second term and he started well relaunching many of his campaigns, pro-western campaigns. He like not only himself, but even local people, I would say, they played a crucial role in defending the city in 2022, because Russians were physically coming to the city. Uh, from what we know, many representatives of law enforcement agencies uh, basically left the city when the war had begun, and those were people like civilians, ordinary people uh, like Mary like representatives of municipal authorities who were purely like real civilians. So they had to take, basically, rifles and defend the, their city. And in my opinion, Mykolaev played a crucial role in defending not only the city, but uh, preserving southern and central Ukraine. Because if Mykolaev had fallen, uh, Russians, uh, it would paved Russians' way to go further into central Ukraine, to southern Ukraine, Odessa, and so on. And now the city is going uh, serious recovery processes. Uh, we are helping them in this direction. And here we have like very important points, like non-corruption, like integrity, to, to help the city uh, return to normal life. Because uh, it's Russians, but it was it paid like really high pri- price for this. So for eight months, the city was basically bombarded by Russians until the liberation of the Kherson regions when they moved away. Can I just follow up with a
2: question specifically about corruption? You know, it's when we say, oh, you know, the, this new politician has got a program of rooting out corruption what does that physically what, what does it actually practically mean what do you do i mean if you start firing presumably these the corrupt officials are in positions of power positions of authority they whatever their personal morality the place sort of depends on them to function what
1: do you do, just go in and fire everyone or would you do, is it a gradual process I th- would say this is a very gradual process because you know corruption is still part of this post Soviet mentality many people coming to power still uh, try to get they come to power to to be corrupt basically you know to, to earn more money to get more land to get more premises to, to get more real estate and stuff like this and that's why many new politicians who try to come to power uh, we really have high expectations from them because they are represent new generation we expect them to be non-corrupt and uh, this is like this is when non-corruption is linked to efficiency to good governance because sometimes people are not corrupt but people around them are corrupt and they still try to do different schemes you know to get some corrupt activities I really really liked when the mayor of Mikulayev had one of the first meetings with the ambassador of, of Denmark because Denmark took under auspices recovery of Mikulayev. And he said, he said brilliant phrase, we do not need money. We need projects and we need their results. So we we had this kind of cooperation when uh, Denmark uh, did not did not send a single uh, euro of money to to Mykolaiv. Instead, they were buying uh, different uh, stuff like pipes, uh, water cleaning system, everything for the city to survive through the winter. And uh, so we managed to organize the process uh, when Denmark supplied different supplies worth of like 30 million euro without sending money. Because this was the position of the mayor. He said, like, the less money I see going through my officials, the more column. I mean, it's it's, it's easier for me. So this was one of the idea how to avoid corruption in the recovery process. As you say, it's obviously a gradual process because in the news in the last couple
2: of days, there's been a story of the president himself firing all the regional heads of the recruitment offices. Can you tell us what, what's going on there? What's behind that?
1: So the problem is that uh, many of those people responsible for those process are still from this, well, post-Soviet corrupt generation. And uh, this is actually huge demotivational for the army, for people to join the army. And that's why we had this, well, the government fortunately had this idea at last to remove them, to replace with former, like, military officers who came from the war, from the front lines, so that there is much more trust to them, so that they are not corrupt, and uh, people would be more willingly joining the army. And what
2: form does the corruption take? Is this people paying backhanders in order not to be conscripted
1: exactly so you know it usually takes two for corruption like like in tango uh, so somebody is paying the bribe somebody is taking the bribe and basically the most usual scheme was about organizing uh, for people who do not want to go to the army well making documents so that do not go to the army so that's what those uh, o- officials were doing they were taking bribes for not taking people to to the army
2: so they're put in uh, what we would have called a reserved occupation so they they get a Certificate saying they're doing vital work, uh, which means they can't be taken away from their their jobs to go and serve.
1: Yes, one of the documents, but usually there could be like uh, documents based on medical condition of the potential soldiers, which were like quite often faked, turned out, and they were paying like uh, people were paying huge money to get those documents, were paying to those uh, officials.
0: Coming back to the full-scale invasion, uh, Terence, tell us what you were doing in the period leading up to that, and also what you've been doing since
1: then. So, the several, uh, like, I think two weeks before the invasion I took my family out of Kyiv because well it was logical that the threat is really high and it's very possible that the war is coming and um, I took them to my native city of Lviv to my parents and returned to Kyiv so basically we were preparing here for the guerrilla war because uh, when we saw the pace the Russians were moving into Kyiv we realized that it's quite possible that they will invade Kyiv on the other hand uh, I could not have imagined what they would do in Kyiv because well I live here for many, many years I know the spirit of key residents, they would not accept any occupation. I mean, even if Russians had invaded Kiev, they would have seen such a strong guerrilla war. So, I mean, I saw in the first days when I went to the recruitment office, to the army, to the territorial defense, I saw just lines, lines of men, like dozens, hundreds staying to ready to fight. Even though they, like, they, we realized that those are ordinary people who were, uh, well, facing the world's second strongest army. It was, it was known at that time. And so this was like, I was almost crying when I saw this because I was so proud of K-Res When they were ready to stand and to oppose the aggressor. Uh, So basically, we were getting ready for the guerrilla war like digging trenches um, one of the interesting points we had to cover all uh, signs of streets so that did discoordinate Russians if they if they invade we were volunteering to help local branches of territorial defense and actually you know there were so many people coming to join the army at that time that the army had the privilege to choose for example I didn't have any any military experience any like military background and they said like okay you can volunteer because first of all we need men who who have some experience and there were plenty of them so I started Volunteering and helping territorial defense, territorial branches, and uh, later I joined joined territorial defense. Undergone some training in force around Kyiv, so that we were we were ready, well, to fight. Uh, fortunately, uh, the Ukrainian army has stopped Russians uh, on the borders of Kyiv, and we did not see any like real battles in the city of Kyiv. It's
2: pointless to speculate about the progress of the war this moment, but let's assume, and we all hope very sincerely, that it's going to end in a decisive victory for Ukraine, not in some sort of thing that doesn't settle the territorial issue once and for all. When you're going forward, thinking about relations with Russia, what sort of Russia would you like to see emerging from the defeat?
1: I would like to see no Russia. Because if Russia remains as it is today, within its current borders and within its current system of governance, it's just a question of time, when Russia attacks somebody again if it's going to be Ukraine, Baltic countries, NATO, anyone. But this is like the essence of Russia. This is the empire which wants to expand expand all the time, which wants to conquer more and more uh, countries because, well, there are many reasons to this. First of all, because of their own poverty and they t- try to distract by external wars, they want to distract uh, attention from internal poverty. So this is the ide- ideology of Russia. And even if we assume that so-called democratic opposition, democratic Russian opposition comes to power, uh, first I don't believe it's truly democratic opposition, but even if this this is genuine democratic opposition, I'm sure they will be removed by former generals, former KGB staff, uh, who will replace them and start again again war against Ukraine or any other country. So that's why um, we have joined this project called Free Nations of Post-Russia Forum. This is basically a group of uh, Russian citizens who, because of their political views, had to move to Europe, to the United States, uh, because they openly state they want to see their countries independent. like Ichkeria, Bashkorstan Sahel, many, many other countries. And they openly say that our uh, republics are occupied by Russia and we want to see them independent. And this is actually, um, it's not about destroying Russia, it's about giving possibility for current Russian citizens to live normal lives, to found their own states, to become civilized states, to trade with the West. And this will be actually a win-win scenario, because, well, Ukraine will win, the West will win for obvious reasons, and current Russian citizens will win because they will not have to pay huge rent to sustain corrupt Putin regime. They will not have to pay huge rent to for their imperialistic wars. Instead, they they will be able to direct those money for their for development of their regions and become uh, richer themselves.
2: So, just to make this clear, there are what are the 22 republics inside the Russian Federation? You would like each of those to become independent or form, uh, form perhaps uh, uh, groupings, federations amongst themselves in order to have an independent economic existence. Some of them are very small, aren't they? Some of them are only have very small populations of a, only a million or something like this. So can you say a little bit more about the you
1: know how, how practically you would see that playing out? It will be up to those people to decide how they see their own countries. For example, we can see, uh, we can tell about some regions, republics which are formed as a states, like each area which is uh, de facto in the euro occupied by russia which is independent state occupied by by the russian federation so th- there are some more or less clear borders of this republic there are some legal uh, representatives of this republic so it's easier with carrier with other countries that's what we are having discussions at those forums so for example we have discussions between representatives of karelia and ingria near Saint petersburg so they're still deciding if they want to be like one country or the, the, they want to be separately, but it's not for Ukrainians or Westerners, Westerners to decide about their destiny, it's about uh, we want to give them possibility to decide how they see their future.
0: Teres, what indications have there been, do you think, in the last few months that would give you confidence or, or, or hope that this was a possibility?
1: So, yes, we can say that a year ago talks about Russian disintegration were quite toxic, so nobody would even talk about it. Then, then they were became, well, let's say, marginal. And I would say that after the Prigozhin mutiny, uh, they became quite realistic. So now people in the West really consider this scenario. Uh, we will not see Russian collapse like overnight, we will not see the so-called parade of uh, sovereignty of uh, that, like, 20 republics suddenly will announce their sovereignty, it will not happen like this. We will see uh, more mutiny like Perhozian mutiny, other mutinies, we will see more uh, turmoil within Russia uh, because you know there are quite strong contradictions between different centers of powers in the, on the national level of Russia. There are quite strong republics uh, which now do, cannot, like they are not strong enough to talk about uh, their independence, but we will see step by step things happening like this. And this is actually uh, one of the ideas of the um, Free Nations of Post-Russia forum, that if the West is afraid of the chaotic Russian collapse, which may result. Result in internal wars, bloodshed, uh, migrants traveling all over the world, and even nuclear weapons flying all over the world. This is our idea. We c- if you are afraid of the chaotic Russian collapse, we call on to make strategy for a civilized Russian disintegration, so that it goes as peacefully as possible.
2: Uh, moving back to Ukraine, clearly the politics of Ukraine are very much determined by the the conflict, the need for national unity, uh, etc. And that's an unnatural state. It would be perfectly natural for Ukraine to, you know, go back to democratic politics where you have different points of view, different parties, etc. Is there anything you see in the current situation which gives you an idea of of how the cards might fall when peace comes in, in the context of Ukrainian domestic politics?
1: I don't see yet clear scenario, but I know one thing that Ukraine is a democratic country and it will not give up democracy for any reason. So even if there are some powers in Ukraine who want to establish authoritarian state in Ukraine, well, we had two Maidans already and I don't think that there will be any person who would like to face another Maidan because they know that uh, this is freedom-loving people and who will not accept any form of slavery, any, any form of authoritarianism because this is the idea why we are fighting Russians. We want to, don't want to become part of authoritarian state, we want to remain free and democratic country. And it will be people of Ukraine who will be deciding the future of this country and who will lead this country.
0: Is the future for Ukraine, as we imagine it will be, in both the EU and NATO, do you think? Is that vital for its future security?
1: Absolutely. I think the only reason why Russia attacked Ukraine, not, let's say, Lithuania, because Lithuania is part of NATO. And this is real security guarantees. Yes, many people criticize NATO, but I think uh, this case actually demonstrated that Western institutions actually work. And this is why uh, many countries, Baltic countries, Poland, many other countries can feel themselves relatively uh, secure because they are under NATO umbrella. And this was a huge omission by Ukraine. Well, it's not only fault of Ukraine, but still the fact that Ukraine was not part of uh, NATO, this is the reason, one of the reasons why uh, Russia dared to invade Ukraine. Just one follow-up point about that.
0: Uh, it's interesting when we look at it, I mean, as historians as opposed to people covering the current situation at the moment, you can look back and and understand why NATO was cautious. You may say it was a mistake with the benefit of hindsight, but what the war has given NATO, and and certainly the leading players in NATO, is a genuine reason to say, well, whatever our concerns were about irritating Russia in the past, they've gone now. So Patrick and I were discussing actually sort of economic development which will come out of the war. It's quite nice, I think, for some of the people listening to this podcast to, to and people in Ukraine more generally to look ahead with a bit more optimism and calculate, frankly, that the war will have some positive outcomes. And one of the positive outcomes, which may have taken an awful long time, I think will be this long term security for Ukraine. Do you feel that too?
1: Yes, absolutely. If you're talking uh, both about security in terms of military security or economic security, I, I would even say democracy security. All those institutions, NATO and the EU, they propose the security. This is the case when Ukraine can propose something to those institutions, because, well, uh, I don't think uh, any other country has uh, such a great experience of fighting Russia, fighting authoritarianism. I don't think there are more uh, freedom-loving people in the EU and US as in Ukraine, because we are going through all those hard times and we appreciate freedom as nobody else.
2: Yeah, I think we've we've all been struck by the spirit here. And it is a, a remarkable thing that you're doing here. It is, as you say, without historical precedent. Uh, which leads me to wonder why it is that in the United States you have people on the right, people you would imagine would naturally see in Ukraine a kind of distillation of all the values that they're meant to uphold. Yet still there's this hostility towards Ukraine, this feeling that it's still a corrupt country, etc. Where do you think that comes from?
1: The story about Ukraine as a totally corrupt country. It comes mainly from Russia, because in general all messages from Russia were that Ukraine is a failed state. So for decades it was working on this message that Ukraine has failed, that's why we should take control over Ukraine, not because it's a failed state. Obviously, corruption is still a huge problem in Ukraine, but there is not a single country in neither in you nor in NATO where there is no corruption. There is no uh, single country with zero corruption. And actually, since the revolution of dignity, we have created this system of anti-corruption institution, which does not exist in the single country of the world. So there are like five uh, major national institutions, including national higher anti-corruption court, which basically is fighting corruption, and they are quite successful. So and most importantly, the, we have strong civil society. We have strong experts who try to control the authorities, and uh, we have seen recently quite many coru- high-level corruption cases, including a case against head of chair of the Supreme Court of Ukraine, which was probably the the, the highest case in recent Ukraine, which is now uh, accused in corruption, and hopefully and most likely will face jail for for his corrupt activities so obviously we do not say that ukraine is not corrupt corruption is still a problem but uh, i would say that uh, the war has demonstrated that corruption is real problem for russia because one of the reasons of the failure of the russian army because it was totally rotten it was totally corrupt and uh, actually corruption in russia has benefited ukraine a lot and realizing this we realize why corruption is uh, something really bad and why we have to fight it and we have quite strong people already fighting it both on uh, among civil society as well as on national level great stuff thanks taris thanks
2: taris that was brilliant that was really really illuminating well that was Taras Bick. do join us in part two to hear from lydia and dennis a couple we met in kiev who told us frankly what they thought about the war the political situation and ukraine's future Well, here we are. Sunday is drawing to a close. We're sitting in a very nice uh, kind of trendy cafe in the heart of Kiev with two young Kievans. We've got Dennis, who's, who lives here all the time, and Lydia, who has been living here, but has recent, is about to move to London or has just moved to London or south of London to Hersham. Can I start off with you then, Lydia, just asking you, what, what, why did you decide to leave? Why did you decide to move to the UK?
3: Before war started, I had a great position and very good Ukrainian company. But when war started, we left everything. My house, my job. And now I don't see future here in Ukraine. And that's why I'm going to move in UK. I, in UK, I was lucky to get this proposition, yes, opportunity, and uh, I, I would like to try. And I hope in future, when life finished. With new experience, I'm returned to Ukraine.
2: Okay, so so it's part of a broader plan. It's it's looking to the future, but the future for you will be here yes. in Ukraine. Yes. And what about you, Dennis? Tell us about uh, what you do and how you see the situation at the moment. Are you hopeful that we're going to see peace here in the in the coming months?
1: Я відносно відлиден на нефтратив, робота, нефтратив помешкання.
4: I am well situated, I I live in the center of Kyiv, and I didn't uh, leave Kyiv after the invasion started. But uh, I I believe that the bigger problem for uh, us, Ukrainians, it's not Russian uh, troops, but uh, our inner situation in the country. The corruption is, there is a huge corruption here and uh, that's why people are leaving the country looking for the better opportunities in Europe, on the, on the West.
1: Uh,
2: Lydia, is that a problem that you see in those stark terms and you share Denis's fears for Ukraine's future? In the West, we're told that Ukraine is dealing with a corruption problem, that everything's being cleaned up or is in the process of being cleaned up. Dennis clearly doesn't uh, have that same optimism <laughs> do you take the view that there's a long way to go before ukraine is a fully functioning democracy
3: i'm not sure denis opinion i'm more positive i have best opinion about ukraine i'm sure that we will have great future then our democracy are developing yes And we will win this corruption in any case. And I don't think it's the corruption in Ukraine so deep, how do you think about this? uh, I believe in our young generation, really believe.
2: (laughs) And what about the, the outcome of the war? Are you confident that Ukraine will win on its terms and that that victory will come sooner rather than later?
3: I'm pretty sure that victory will come sooner than later. Again, I'm very optimistic. We have a very strong people, a very strong mentality, and I do believe that we will win soon. And everybody return to Ukraine who left this country, who stay in this country, will become more positive sooner. Yes, and we will have a great future here in
4: Ukraine. The power is changing, the mayors and the presidents are changing, but corruption corruption still persists uh, in our country, and it's a very bad, really bad situation here. We are losing our best people, and evil people still remain on the uh, flows of money, And I am afraid that this way we will lose the better part of the population and the worst part of the population will remain
0: here. Okay, that's all for this episode. Do join us on Friday when, as usual, we'll be analysing the news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.